have the blessing of the Lord's Day, this, this gift that we have to assemble together as the body of Christ, to, to worship Christ, to learn more of Christ, to hear the word of Christ. Father, we pray during our uh, time this morning as we uh, think through uh, what, what the whole of Scripture says about your decree, that you would help us to not only think rightly about it, but to feel rightly and to respond rightly to these grand truths that, you, that your word says. Help us, Lord, to value what you say. Help us to care about what you say. Help us to think that every uh, word in your word is important and valuable. Lord, that, that nothing is, is uh, irrelevant, Lord. And pray that you do all this for the good of your church and for the glory of your name. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been uh, working through the topic of God's decree uh, that is, the things that God commands to happen, and everything that God commands to happen does happen. And that, that's different from God's uh, commands in the sense of what he tells us to do, right? His uh, moral law, obviously all that God tells us to do doesn't always happen. But God's decrees in the sense that uh, what God commands in eternity past that will come to pass in history, all, all that actually does happen because he's commanded it because he's decreed it and uh, thank you for helping pass those packs out sorry I was negligent on that uh, today we're gonna finish up this topic of God's decree um, and next week just to let you know we're gonna have a Q&A time we know that we've covered quite a bit uh, with the first chapter being on scripture, the second chapter being on uh, the attributes of God and, and the Trinity, and this chapter being, being a challenging one to, to be able to try to think through what does this actually mean. It can be uh, confusing, uh, can, can seem like we're saying something that we're not actually saying, and so we want to open up the time tomorrow. So Pastor Brennan and myself will be up here uh, next uh, morning, so have, have questions ready, or else I'll start asking you questions. <laughs> uh, so keep that in mind um, some key verses to remember as, as we're working through God's decree uh, Romans 11.36 this, this verse gives me great comfort and, and helps us to remember the purpose of our lives and all things uh, for from him, from God and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever, amen so we see there that all things, in, in one sense, are from him. He, he's decreed these things to happen, all things that do happen. And then Ephesians 1.11, uh, a verse that we, we well know. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so again, looking at God's decree, all things happen according to to the counsel of his will, including um, uh, the salvation of sinners, which we'll be looking at more uh, today. I thought it would be helpful to begin this morning with a, a quick review, because we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So pa uh, paragraph one of, of chapter three on God's decree, we saw that uh, God has decreed all things that come to pass. So let's draw a little chart here. So everything that comes to pass uh, is rooted in God's decree. 
we want to maintain that. Uh, but we also saw in chapter 1 that though he has decreed all things, he is not the author of sin. Another fence that we uh, put up a couple weeks ago, uh, although God has decreed all things that uh, come to pass, that does not take away human choice and responsibility. We need to maintain, maintain that as well, because the Bible does. And then the third fence that we put up around this doctrine, God decrees all things that come to pass without taking away the reality of second causes. And if you remember what uh, second causes are, uh, if you remember I had a hard time coming up with the word wheat. That's what flour is made up of, as I was reminded two weeks ago. Um, that the second cause, you know, we, we thank God when we get our dinner at the table, right? We, we recognize that he is the ultimate cause as to why we have food on the table. But that doesn't take away the second causes that got that food to the table, right? The, the farmers who grew the wheat and uh, the people who uh, milled it or whatever and the employees in the store and, and you actually working hard to get money and and the, 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 the person who prepared the food, all of those are, are real things. We don't take away the reality of those. There are, though God is the ultimate cause, the primary cause, the first cause, there, he works through secondary causes. Okay? Now, we look at this, and the natural reaction is how? Right? How, how can this be true and this be true? Particularly, I think, these first two things, right? How can God decree all that comes to pass and him not be the author of sin? That's a challenging question. That, that's, how does that work, right? How does God decree all things that come to pass without taking away uh, real human choice and responsibility? It seems to us that if if God is the one who decrees all things that come to pass, then he must, uh, one, be responsible for sin, and two, that must take away our own responsibility, somewhere in there, okay, right? And so the question is, is how does that work? And the temptation is to want to deny one, one of those, right? Either to deny that he actually decrees all things that come to pass, or probably less of a temptation in our day. It has historically been a temptation. Uh, the temptation to deny uh, one of these things. Okay. And I think what, what makes it so hard for us to comprehend that both of these things exist. Both of them are clearly seen in scripture. We, we need to first say, and I hope we've seen that as we've worked through it. But, but the reason why it's so challenging for us is because we're dealing with a, a, a sovereignty that's infinite. Okay, so remember, we're finite, we're, we're limited, and we're dealing with a, a degree of, of sovereignty that is infinite, that, that has no limitations. 
And so the highest degree of sovereignty that you and I could probably comprehend is maybe one on one side uh, programming a, a robot to do exactly what you want to do and sending it off and, and, it, and it does the thing, right? And so if, if that's the case, if that's the, the type of sovereign that, that God is, then, then he would be responsible for sin. If, if he's programmed me to sin and I sin, he is responsible for that sin. If, if that's the degree of sovereignty we're, we're dealing with, okay? On the other hand, uh, another maybe type of sovereignty that we can comprehend is, is a, a sovereignty that forces someone to do something or, or coerces someone to do something, Some, like, like a tyrant, right, who, who forces uh, people to do what he wants. Um, and so you, you could probably uh, comprehend a degree of sovereignty where I, I want Gabe to eat a donut, okay? I probably wouldn't have to twist your arm to do that. You already ate a donut, didn't you? Yeah, okay, okay. And, and I lift him up and I drag him by the arm and I take him over there and I stuff a donut in his mouth, right? You, we can comprehend that degree of sovereignty. Gabe's getting taller than me, so I probably shouldn't try to do that. He is taller than me. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So, so that's, that's, that's the degree of sovereignty that may, maybe the height of sovereignty that, that we can fathom, that we can comprehend. And, and we have to recognize that that's a finite degree of sovereignty. Right? That's something that humanity is able to, to do. So, so it's finite. What we're dealing with here, and what makes this so hard to comprehend that both of these exist, is we're dealing with an infinite sovereignty that God is so sovereign that he is actually sovereign over the free choices of men. And that blows our minds, doesn't it? Because it, seem like, it seems like both of those things can't exist at the same time. That God must force us to do things, or he, he programmed us to do things, but that's not the case. God is so sovereign that he's sovereign over the real choices that, that you and I make and that we're responsible for. And we know, we've seen, we've seen that his purposes, even though ours may be sinful and evil, his purposes are always what? Good. Okay, and so we have to recognize that. And, and this isn't the only thing where we have this, this sort of difficulty where we're tempted to deny uh, 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 one of the truths that the Bible holds up in, in tension, as it were, seems like tension. Um, uh, the Trinity is another good example. Throughout Christian history, men have been tempted to deny either the threeness of God, that he's three persons, or the oneness of God, that he, he's one being. Why are people tempted to deny one of those? Be because we can't comprehend it. I don't know how both of those, I, I, there's nothing in our world that is like that, right? And so we're tempted uh, to deny that. Or uh, people have historically been tempted to deny either the transcendence of God, that God is high and lifted up, that he's so far beyond us, that he's the creator and we're the creature and he, he's, he's way up there. And also the Bible teaches teaches us that he's imminent, that he's actually with us. And so those themes, how, how can both of those exist at the same time? How can he be transcendent, the God who is holy, 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 high and lifted up, and also imminent, the God who is with us, dwelling in us? And there's a temptation to want to deny one of those because it seems like they both can't exist at the same time. And it's the same with this. What makes us so difficult is we cannot comprehend how both of these exist at the same time, but we have to recognize that they do. Scripture clearly teaches both, that God has decreed all things that come to pass, 
but he's not the author of sin. And he, does, it, he, he decrees all things to come, that come to pass, and we have real human choice and responsibility. Okay, and we need to uphold uh, all of those things because scripture upholds all of those things. And so we looked at that. Uh, in paragraph two, we, we made a sort of uh, note uh, that uh, God decrees all things that come to pass, but that decree, what he has decided, is not dependent on what he foresees. to this one I think because they don't comprehend it and so trying to figure out how to make this all work we, uh, some people come up with this that God decrees what will happen based upon what he sees will, will happen and we have to stop for a moment and ask ourselves is that really decreeing anything no it's just announcing the future right it's not commanding the future and, and if God is just decreeing what he foresees that we will do who's actually the one wheel me you right and and that's not a good thing right and so God's decree is not dependent on what he foresees will happen God's decree is dependent instead on according to Ephesians 1 11 he works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? His decree is based upon what he decides. It's, it's based upon what he has, as the triune God, what he has willed to happen. And again, that is a good thing. That is a good thing, okay? And so we looked at that in paragraphs uh, one and two. And then last week... Uh, we transition that part of God's decree. He's decreed all things that come to pass. Part of that is uh, his decree to save sinners. I'm running out of room here. Let me restart here. He's decreed all things that, that come to pass, and part of that is the salvation of sinners. Praise God. He's decreed that sinners uh, would be saved. Uh, and as part of that, well, first we have to recognize that all things includes that, right? Uh, and, and part of that means that he's uh, decreed the who, who will be saved, right? He doesn't just decree generally the salvation of sinners. He decrees the who of salvation. And uh, Pastor Brennan taught on this last week that the Bible refers to the who as the elect. Those whom God has de determined to save. We don't, we don't know who that is, right? But God knows and he's uh, determined to save those uh, that he has elected. And so uh, paragraph three, part of what God has decreed is to save certain sinners to the praise of his grace. And so the why, he's also decreed the why, is to the 
grace. That's the purpose of it. Okay, so he's determined the who. He's decreed the who. He's decreed uh, the why. And uh, so, he, sorry, part, uh, paragraph three, part of what God has decreed is to save certain sinners to the praise of his grace and to let others get what they want and deserve. We have to recognize that, that if someone never comes to faith in Christ, it's because that's actually what they want, right? That's their choice and they're responsible for it. And so they get what they want and deserve to the praise of his justice, Romans 9 tells us, right? And God has determined the why of that. Paragraph four we saw that the number of those who God has predestined, the elect, is a fixed number. Which makes sense, right? If, if God has decreed this in eternity past, who will be saved, how could that change? It's, it's already been decreed. It's already been determined. Again, do we know who the elect are? Do we say, well, God must have filled up the elect, so I better stop sharing the gospel no should we ever say well I haven't put my faith in Christ and so I must not be elect and so I shouldn't put my faith in Christ no right we, we don't know that we don't have that information it's, God has revealed these things but he hasn't revealed the specifics so we know the the, the who the why uh, uh, par paragraph four it's a fixed number uh, fixed number paragraph five uh, as part of the why also, it's not con any, uh, conditioned in anything in the person. In other words, God didn't save me because I'm special. Right? God didn't save me because he saw something unique in me. That's not the why. He didn't, he didn't look at me and say, well, I'm going to save him because I bet he'll put his faith in me, right? If I was left to my own devices, would I have ever put my faith in Christ? No. It's, it's, not, it's not because of who I am. It, it, it leaves no room for pride. It's, it's completely based upon uh, his gracious will. And grace, we have to remember, is not something we deserve. That, that's the very definition of the word, right? God graciously, he, he gives us things that we don't deserve. It's not based upon anything in us. It's, it's completely based upon God's free will, as it were, and his grace. That, that he would save me. That he would save you. So, so we need to remember that. It's not based upon something he saw in me. It's not based upon something special in me. It's completely based upon his grace. And so, as we're thinking through this, God decrees all things that come to pass. A part of that is the salvation of sinners. He's decreed the who, which is the elect, the fixed number. He's decreed why he would save sinners. It's to the praise of his grace. It's not uh, based upon anything in me. If anything, everything in me, uh, the only thing that's based upon in me is my sin because in order to save sinners, you need sinners, right? That's the only thing that you and I bring to the table is our sin. And as we're thinking through this, we, we need to remember, we must remember those fences that we put up early, earlier on. 
that God is not responsible for the fact that I am a sinner. I'm a sinner because I want to sin. Right? We, we actually love to sin. The God is not responsible for that. And I actually freely choose sin. You freely choose sin. God does not force anybody into sin. He didn't force Adam to sin. He, he made a, a perfect world, you know, with, with every good thing in the garden and, and he made all things good and Adam and Eve decided to reject God as their king because they wanted to be king themselves and they freely chose that. God did not drag them by the feet to that. We have to, to remember that, okay? And we also have to remember when, when sinners do not come to faith in Christ, it's not because God is forcing them not to come to faith in Christ. It's because they don't want to come to faith in Christ. They're, they're responsible for that. We need to uphold that, okay? And so uh, that's what we've covered the past two weeks. And again, I, I actually hope that you have questions because these are very difficult things to think through. Uh, please write those down for next week, okay? So we, we've looked at the who and the why, the salvation of sinners, Today we're going to look at the how. We're going to look at the how. How has God decreed to save sinners? And this will be just a brief, brief uh, overview. There's plenty more uh, to be said on this question. How has God decreed that sinners should be saved? So beginning there, uh, uh, chapter 3. Uh, section 6. As God has appointed the elect unto glory. So that's talking again about the who. Who has God saved? The elect. As God has appointed the elect unto glory. So he has by the eternal and most free purpose of his will. Foreordained all the means thereunto. In other words. God is sovereign over the ends. Who will be saved? And he's sovereign over the means, how those people will be saved. Does that make sense? So again, given that food example, God was sovereign over the fact that you had food on your table, the end. And he was sovereign over the means in which you got that food on your table, the farmers and uh, so on and so forth. Does that make sense? Okay. We need to uphold, uphold both, that he's sovereign over the ends and the means. And so first of all, how does God save the elect? First of all, he saves them by Christ. Most importantly, we want to say that he saves them by Christ. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, uh, Adam is our federal head, he's a representative, all of us are sinners in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. Christ is the one that accomplishes our salvation. He's, he's the one that brings the elect to salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 9 and 10 there. For God has not destined us for wrath. He has not decreed that the Christian would uh, go to hell. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
So we see there that word through is a key word. How does the elect, how do those who are not destined for wrath obtain salvation? It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that accomplishes the salvation of his people. There's more than that, right? There's more to be said about that. Not only uh, does God save the elect uh, by Christ, he also calls us unto faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Continuing on, uh, let's maybe review what we just said. Wherefore, they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season. And so it's uh, how are sinners saved by Christ? Through what? Spirit doing, doing what? Calling us, right? What does that look like? What does that mean? Does anybody know what it means that the Spirit calls us to salvation? Yeah, in faith, right? Yeah, and so uh, let's turn to John chapter 3. We're going to see some of these things in John chapter 3 that we're talking about. Uh, John chapter 3, very well-known passage with uh, Nicodemus where Christ... Uh, tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. All right, let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what comes first? Being born again or seeing the kingdom of God? Born again, right? Okay, let's keep reading. Jesus answered, I'm sorry, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is confused, right? He's thinking about a physical birth. But what type of birth is Jesus talking about here? A spiritual birth, right? We're, we're spiritually dead. We must be born again spiritually to be able to first see the kingdom. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so before we can enter the kingdom of God, what must happen? You must be born again, Right? At what point do we enter the kingdom of God? At what point do we see the kingdom of God? Salvation, right? When, we've, when we put our faith in Christ, we've now become part of the kingdom of God. We are able to see the kingdom of God. But what has to happen before we put our faith in Christ? We must be born again, right? And this is uh, what we would call the effectual calling, and, and we'll get more into that later 
uh, in a different chapter. But it's, it's, the, it's where the Spirit calls us out of death into life. He gives us spiritual life. And, and the, the natural reaction to that new life is to then put our faith in Christ. Right? And we go on. Uh, verse, we'll go on to verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, we don't, we don't know when someone's going to be saved. We don't know when the Spirit's going to effectually work to cause a person to be born again. He just does it, right? He, he comes and goes, and, and we've probably seen that in, in our lives, uh, those who have walked with the Lord long enough. You know, there's someone you, you have been ministering to, who you've been sharing the gospel with diligently uh, uh, with, and it seems like nothing is happening. And then all of a sudden, something happens, right? They were born again. The Spirit moved in, 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 in the right time. And so, uh, God decrees all things to come to pass. That includes the how of salvation. It's by Christ through the Spirit calling us, uh, which we would uh, maybe call being born again or regeneration. Causes us to be born again. Okay. Uh, and he does that in his own timing, his perfect timing. Second Thessalonians there on your sheet, chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So, so God chose these believers in Thessalonica to be saved. How did he accomplish that salvation? Through sanctification by the Spirit, being, being set apart, being uh, fundamentally changed by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. So, um, we'll call this the, kind of keep it going here. What's the next step? The Spirit calls us, which causes us to be born again. We're sanctified by the Spirit and what? Belief, right? Belief in the truth. We, we call that faith, right? And what's the object? Who are we putting our faith in? Christ. Faith in By what he has done. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through. Again, these are, through is an important word for us right now because we're thinking about the how. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. According to this passage, who provides the means, faith in Christ, that God uses to save a person? God, right? Um, it, it's talking about the whole thing as a gift of God. The salvation, but included in that also is that uh, faith that he gives us. And so that, that's important. That's important. That even our faith is a gift of God. We didn't believe in Christ because we were smarter than the next person next to us. We didn't believe in Christ because we were more humble than, than someone. We didn't believe in Christ because we really figured it out. Ultimately, the thing that separates me from the unbeliever is not because I'm more humble or more smart or was more broken over my sin or any of that stuff. 
Ultimately, the difference between me and the unbeliever is God's gracious gift of faith in Christ to me. And so we're saved uh, by Christ through the Spirit calling us, which causes us to be born again, which then causes us to put our faith in Christ. And before we want to move on, this just, a, just as a little extra thing. What I love about this, and I think what many people miss because they don't, they don't believe these things, is it, is it really shows us that our salvation is from a triune God. our salvation, who, who died on that cross, uh, takes the penalty for our sin, who lived the perfect life in our stead, who rose from the grave conquering sin and death, and what's often missed by others is, is our salvation is also from the Holy Spirit. He's the one that causes us to be born again. He's the one that causes us to, to, to have faith in Christ. And, and so our whole salvation is this Trinitarian work. It's not just Jesus who saves us. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune God, who saves us. And we don't want to miss that. Uh, so we put our faith in Christ. What, what happens then? Well, we see that next salvation includes justification, adoption, sanctification, preservation, and all of these things continue on uh, through faith, uh, continuing on in the, the second London there. Uh, all these people are, all the elect are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. See there, Romans 8, 30. This is called the uh, golden chain of, of redemption. In other words, how, how salvation actually works out. And those whom he predestined, here, this is the predestined God's decree. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That's here, right? The Spirit's work. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So our faith in Christ results in what? Justification. What does that mean? What? We're declared righteous, right? And why are we declared righteous? How are we declared righteous? By Christ, right? We're, by faith, we're united to Christ. His righteousness is our righteousness. And so we can be declared righteous for God. We see that faith, Christ, uh, results in glorification, right? And I want us to notice something in this passage. Is there anybody lost in that sequence? Does it say, in those whom he predestined, some of those he called. And some of those he called, some of those he justified. And some of those he justified, some of those he glorified. Does it say that? No. It says, those, this group, whom he predestined, that same group is also called, that same group who is called is also justified, and that same group who is justified is also glorified. 
uh, as Christ would put it, he, he loses none of his sheep. None of them are lost. Which is a great comfort, isn't it? None of them are lost. As we look at this passage, I want us to, to notice, uh, ask the question, what is God saving people to? What is the end purpose of it? What? Okay, well, what's the end of the chain? Glorification, which involves that, right? It's a restoration of what was lost in Ad, by Adam and more than that, right? That, that we have an end. There's a purpose for the salvation. He doesn't just save people so they don't go to hell, right? He saves people to the end that they would be glorified and that they would enjoy glorification, which ultimately is our purpose, to reflect the glory of God. To glorify him. That's what happens in glorification. That we actually look like him the way that we're intended to. And our other purpose uh, connected to that is union with him. And so that's the end. And, and I think that's important because if we live our whole lives or we communicate to others that the whole reason that Jesus came is just so that you are saved from hell, what a purpose for life. That your only purpose is that you don't go to hell. It's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. That you and I have a purpose. And that purpose is to reflect the glory of our triune God. To show what he's like. Enjoy him. To commune with him. And that should affect how we view all of life. Because the end of it is that. And so shouldn't we in, start working toward that end? Isn't that the purpose of why we've been saved? Is for those things. And so, God is saving people to glorification. Are there any who are, who are not glorified? No, right? And the means that he uses uh, to bring us to glory is faith in Christ, or justification, or the Spirit working in us. Um, and, and so actually, we need to add a couple more things here. Um, because there's other privileges that we have in Christ. Sanctifies. Christ, that's what Romans 8 says there. Uh, whoops. Well, we'll put a little... Those whom he sanctifies, uh, those who he justifies, I, I should say, uh, him who began a good work in you will do what? Complete it. Does he lose any of those whom he justifies? Preservation. And then also, in Christ, him being heirs with him, right? And we can now be called sons of God. We've been adopted. These are all the privileges that we have in our salvation. And, and, and this is, I think, really important. Because our salvation is so much more, again, than us just getting out of hell. It's, it's not just what we're being saved from, it's what we're being saved to. That this this whole thing is our salvation. Our salvation is not just our justification. 
Our salvation is not just the fact, if you could say just the fact, is not just the fact that we've been declared righteous in Christ. Our salvation also includes the fact that we're being made righteous like Christ, that he is conforming us into the image. Our salvation also includes that we've been made co-heirs with Christ, that his inheritance is our inheritance. Our salvation also includes our preservation, that he's going to see us uh, to the end, that, that we're gonna uh, persevere through, through, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And our salvation also includes glorification, that one day we truly will be conformed into the image of Christ finally and fully, looking like him, enjoying him. That's, that's our salvation. It's a complete picture. And so in one sense, and you see this language in, in Scripture, uh, in one sense, we have been saved, right? We already are justified and adopted in Christ. In another sense, we are being saved. We're being sanctified. And in a third sense, we will be saved. Glorification, right? It's this whole package is our salvation. And all of this, all of this is accomplished by the means of faith. It's through faith. First Peter 1, uh, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Again, who's the cause of us being born again? God. He's the cause. Being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, this is our, our preservation, through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so you see there, uh, the cause of our salvation, it's God, he causes us to be born again, it's through the resurrection of, of Jesus, through what he's accomplished, it's to this inheritance that we have in glory, and again, it's also through faith. It's through faith. That faith that the Spirit continues to work in us uh, to sanctify us, preserve us, and bring us to glory. Okay? So those are the means that God uses to save sinners. Now, we're not really going to be talking about it this morning, but just as a brief note, can someone put their faith in Christ if they've never heard of Christ? No, and so we, we don't want to, this chapter is not talking about this, but we don't want to neglect the fact that, right, that no one is saved unless they hear of Christ, and the only way uh, that, how, how can they believe if they've never heard, right? How can they hear if someone hasn't been sent? We must go out and share the gospel. Mandy. Oh, just a hand stretch. Okay. <laughs> All right, continuing on. Uh, the elect only have been redeemed by these means. Okay. Uh, continuing on there in the paragraph. Neither are any other, so only the elect, neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Does this mean that, uh, again, that we should only try to share the gospel with the elect? 
Yeah, we don't know who that is. I didn't know, you know, we're called to share the gospel widely and broadly uh, with all people, okay? Does this mean that a person who has heard the gospel doesn't have the responsibility to respond to the gospel in faith? No, right? If, if God, if we say that, that you must uh, believe in Christ for salvation, that God actually commands you to put your faith in Christ, what is the sinner responsible to do? To believe, right? And so who's responsible if they don't believe? Themselves, right? Okay, so just as some fences there. But uh, again, only the elect are the ones who will be effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved. We see this in John chapter 10, uh, verse 25 through 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, if we were to write that, we would probably flip it. You are not my sheep because you do not believe. Right, which is also true. Okay, but what does Jesus say? He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. They don't believe because they were not effectually called and they were not effectually called because they were not among Christ's sheep. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, John chapter 6, let's go to this passage. Of all the passages, uh, I, just as a note, many of you maybe know this already, I didn't grow up believing these things. Okay. John chapter 6, I really wrestled through this and, uh, you know, John chapter 6 was the one that did it for me. For some, it's Romans 9, others, it's Ephesians 1. John chapter 6 was the one that uh, convinced me. I think I was convinced. I just had to teach John chapter 6, which then made, made me actually make a choice. And so, uh, John chapter 6, verses 32, starting in verse 32. Uh, Jesus then said to them, there's these people that are following him because of the miracles that he's done. He's just fed the 5,000. Uh, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They want the physical bread, right? They want the miracle. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So they've seen these amazing works of Christ, and still they don't believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So notice a couple things. What happens with all of those that the Father gives to Christ? What? They come to him. It happens. They, they actually put their faith in Christ. All of those that the Father gives the Son, those people will come to Christ. And all those who then come to Christ, how does Jesus respond to them? Does he cast them out? 
No. And all of those whom the Father has given him in verse 39, does Jesus lose any of them? No. But he raises them up on the last day. Again, there's that one-to-one correlation, just like in, in Romans 8, that all those who are predestined will be called, and all those who are called will be justified, and all those who will be justified will be glorified. It's the same thing here. Right? All those whom the Father has given the Son, the Son will come to the Son, and, and Christ will not lose any of them. And then you go on uh, later in the chapter, verse 61. I, I recommend reading the whole chapter, but uh, verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Again, who's the one that causes us to be born again? Is it something ultimately because we chose it that we're born again? No, it's the work of the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Okay, so there's some of those who do not believe. Why is it that they don't believe? Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That was too hard for them. The fact that uh, only those who believe are the ones given to him by the Father. They didn't, they didn't like that. They turned away from him because of that. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? and yet one of you is a devil. So he roots the unbelief of some in the fact that the father had not uh, uh, given them to the son and he roots the belief of his disciples in the fact that he chose them, you know, with the exception of of Judas. And so um, only the elect, only Christ's sheep will actually come to saving faith, be justified, and so on and so forth. Continuing on here. Again, this is a very challenging doctrine. Uh, There's a lot of room to misuse this doctrine. And historically, it has been misused. Uh, This this fact of uh, predestination and and election and these sorts of things. In the uh, the 1700s, there was a group uh, called the High Calvinists or the High that were uh, very uh, prominent, particularly among Baptists. Um, at least that I know of, in England, and they taught really weird things. They, they upheld God's election, but denied human responsibility. What they would do is, uh, many of them, would not actually share the gospel unless they thought you were elect. That is awful and absurd. People thought that they had to wait to know that they were elect before they could believe in Christ. That is awful and absurd. Okay, we don't want to swing the pendulum that way. And, and uh, they came up with these weird things. How do I know that I'm elect? Well, you know, the sort of uh, providential 
circumstance happened or, you know, a verse, particular verse came into my mind, they started looking for signs to see if they were elect instead of just putting their faith in Christ and knowing that they were elect because they put their faith in Christ. And so we, we want to handle this doctrine with care. For many, again, it seems like when, when you're saying this, it seems like you're also saying that God, people don't have responsibility. We have to uphold both. People really do have responsibility, okay? Uh, God is not the author of evil. And, and scripture clearly uh, shows both of those things. And so uh, here's a caution that the framers of the confession recognizing that, that this is a doctrine that needs to be handled with care, okay? And so they say, the doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word. So what, are, what will of God are we responsible for? Are we responsible for the will of God that we don't know? I don't know what God has decreed tomorrow. Are we responsible for this will of God? We're responsible for which will of God? The one that he's revealed and the where do we find it? In his word alone. We're responsible for this, okay? That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto, we should actually obey what God has commanded us, may from the certainty of their effectual vocation or effectual calling, that's what we talked about there, be assured of the, their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. In other words, put their faith in Christ. And so some things that we need to be careful of. What are some wrong uses of the doctrine of predestination? What are some wrong uses of the fact that God has decreed those who will be saved and the means in which they will be saved? We should not uh, look at election as a, a way to figure out if we're saved. You know, probably many of us wrestle with this. How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm saved? The answer is not, am I elect? That's not the question to ask to know if I'm saved. Okay? What's the question to ask to know if I'm saved? Do I believe in Jesus Christ? Have I rested in Christ as, as my only hope for salvation? And if I have rested in Christ, if I, if I see my great sin and I look to Christ and I see a great Savior and I rest, him, I can know that I'm saved. I don't look in here to try to figure out, you know, am I really saved? Am I, am I elect? I look to Jesus Christ to know that I'm saved. All those who have put their faith in Christ can know that they're elect. Okay? So we don't use the doctrine of election to determine if we're saved. That's a horrible idea that will lead to discouragement or even uh, false assurance. And, and, and we don't want either of those. We look to Christ to know that we're saved. Also, another wrong use of this doctrine. This is not an excuse to downplay the need to evangelize. Just because God is sovereign, who will be saved does not mean that we are not responsible to share the gospel. God has commanded us to share the gospel. And that's the means that he uses to save sinners. And so we were actually responsible to do that. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not enemies. 
The Bible never presents them as enemies. It seems confusing to us, but both are present. And so, who's responsible to share the gospel with, with the unbeliever, my unbelieving friend? I am. Who's sovereign over whether or not that person will be saved? God is. Is that sinner, is that my unbelieving friend still responsible to believe in Christ for salvation? Yes. All of those exist at the same time. The Bible teaches all of those things. And if anything, that this doctrine should motivate us to share the gospel. Because it means we have a 100% success rate. Right? And historically, the men who have been most motivated to go out to, to, to unreached, I'm not, I'm not saying all men, there have been men who don't believe these things who, who do this, but historically, some of the major figures in, in, in church history who have gone out to, to crazy places have believed in this. William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliott, you know, because they had confidence that God was sovereign over salvation and they believed that they were responsible to share the gospel with these people. Thirdly, we don't want to use this doctrine as an excuse to not believe in Christ. So if you're here today and you think that you have to wait to find out if you're elect to believe on Christ, that's absurd. Believe in Christ today. God calls you to do it. He commands you to do it. You have real choice to be able to do it. You're responsible to do it. Do not sit on your hands and wait till you find out if you're elect or not. The way to know that you're elect is to put your faith in Christ. Okay? And fourthly, in this more generally, God's, uh, the doctrine of God's decree and of his sovereignty is not an excuse to not pursue holiness. God is sovereign over our sanctification. God is the one who is at work in us. But has he called us to pursue it as well? Yes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Why are we to... Because God is sovereign over it. And again, that should give us great confidence to pursue it. Okay? We don't sit on our hands. Right uses of this doctrine... Many people ask, why is this important? Well, one, it's important because it has to do with our salvation. It's pretty important. Secondly, it's important because it has to do with the glory of God. This, this doctrine should cause us to see, and this is part, we're all growing this, we'll never reach the, the end of it, but we're, we want to grow in seeing the, the majesty and the glory and the wonder of our God. Want to grow seeing just how sinful we are. Both the more that it leads to a praise of God that this is who I am. I would never come to Christ apart from the work of God. I was a rebel at heart. I was dead and I hated God. I lived for my own glory. This is who I was. And God being so gracious chose me me. I was uh, and, and still am a, a wretched past. What amazing grace that God has shown us. 
that God would choose any, least of all me, to save. That the triune God determined before history that he would save me. That the Father determined in his great love for me that he would send his Son to die for me. That the Son in his great love for me determined before history that he would come to this earth, born as a man, live in this on himself, that the Spirit would so love me, he would work in me, that he would cause me to be born again, that he would sanctify me, conforming me into the image of Christ, that he would bring me to the end to glory. These things should cause us to praise God. These things should cause us to have a reverence of God, that God is this high and not this high. These things should cause us to admire God. Oh, the, the, the depth of his wisdom, the, 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 the height of his sovereignty, the infiniteness of his grace. It should cause us to be humble. What's the difference between me and the unbeliever? It is the grace of God and that alone. It should cause us uh, towards diligence that God is sovereign, so go for it. Share the gospel. Pursue sanctification because God has decreed ultimately your sanctification and your preservation, your glorification that God has decreed who will be saved. So, so pursue what he's told you to do in, in diligence. And lastly, right use of this doctrine it should give us great comfort and assurance that, that when we see our sin, he who decreed that this would happen. Also decree that this will happen. Also decree that this will happen. Also decree that this will happen. And it's all based upon what he decided. And it gives me great comfort and assurance when I, when I see my sin, when, I, when there's that thing that I just can't get over, that, that, that sin that I keep doing, that, that area that I'm incredibly weak in. Where is my hope? My hope is that God has decreed that this will happen, and it will happen. My hope is that God decreed that this will happen, uh, and it will happen, and that God has decreed that this will happen, and it will happen. And, and, and so our comfort and assurance is ultimately in the decree of God and not in our own ability to maintain it, to get there. God has purposed it, and he's planned it, and it will come to pass. And that, that should bring us great comfort assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing this truth. Uh, it's our natural inclination to want to take credit for things. Uh, we, we view things in such a one-dimensional uh, viewpoint. We know that we really did make a choice to believe in Christ, that uh, we really did do that. Lord, but we thank you for revealing to us that ultimately it was you who decided before us an eternity past, that you determined to save a sinner such as me. Father, pray that you would help us to respond rightly to this truth, that you are Lord over all, uh, even not just the ends of salvation, but the means of it. Help us to take great comfort and assurance in the fact that you are Lord over our salvation, 100%. That, that though you have called us to do things, uh, you are the one ultimately who's working in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand this doctrine and, and not just understand it, but love it, that you would save a sinner such as me. 
We pray that you would help us to understand this doctrine in such a way that we would go out with confidence sharing the gospel to everyone we know. Confident that, that you are uh, Lord over their salvation that ultimately it doesn't depend on, our, uh, on us. Help us to pursue sanctification as well, knowing that you are Lord over it. Help us, Lord, to, to view this doctrine rightly and again to love it and to cherish it. Pray that it would lead to a greater praise uh, of you. And pray that as we are about to enter into corporate worship, that, that that would be what would happen. That we would see you as the Lord over, over our salvation and praise you for it. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a reminder, Q&A next week. So bring your questions.